Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, the book of Amos, chapter 6, continued. Okay, we're going to open today uh, by continuing with our detour that re-examines the crucial biblical term Elohim, a word that is typically nearly universally translated into English as God, singular, or gods, plural, little g gods. Now, over the many years of, uh, of studying and, and teaching, I've come to the conclusion <clears throat> that translating Elohim as God or gods easily leads us off track, and that there is a better definition that, that can in a number of situations help to elucidate many biblical passages that are either kind of glossed over when encountered, or a long accepted explanation is given that, that frankly doesn't offer much help, but it does allow for certain questionable man-made doctrines to remain intact and unchallenged. Now since what you're hearing from me on this subject is new to most of you, I want everyone first to be clear about what I'm not saying. I am not saying that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is less than what we know He is. nor does he have any rivals, nor is there any being of any kind comparable to him. I am not saying that we are to accept as valid the God systems of the ancient times pagans, nor of the Greeks, nor of the Romans as being alternative systems of actual gods and goddesses that exist. I will also stipulate that by no means does my conclusion on the proper understanding of the word Elohim have no other possible explanation, nor is it the final word on the subject. Now fortunately, our body of knowledge about the Biblical Hebrew language grows and grows not because the Bible changes but at least partly because so many gifted people have become ancient language scholars, and they continue to discover how one language morphed into another uh, over time, with certain words and their meanings following along from the older to the newer language with just minor modifications. Now the scholarly word for comparing words from two or more languages that were birthed from a common earlier language is called cognates. And due to the many decades of excellent research and the, the regular unearthing of newly discovered troves of ancient tablets and scrolls, this body of knowledge of what those words meant to the ancient Hebrews who wrote the Bible and to those Hebrews who read or heard them continues to expand. 
So, the intended meanings of those original biblical words are being revealed with more nuance and precise definition. For example, the nearly, I mean, really miraculous reemergence of the Dead Sea Scrolls. After being buried in caves for 2,000 years, I don't know if you realize it, but it gave us an immediate 1,000 year leap back in time from the earliest Old Testament manuscripts we had ever found prior to that discovery. A thousand years. That is, the Old Testament translations that we all carry around that are based on copies of the ancient Hebrew Biblical manuscripts as opposed to those based on the Greek Septuagint are from no earlier than about a thousand AD. AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls, however, were written around the second century BC. These far older texts have revealed so much to us, primarily because they are the closest yet to the time the original scriptures were written, and by at least a thousand years from what we've ever had before that discovery. Now imagine, let this sink in for a minute. We now have the very same Old Testament in our possession in the Dead Sea Scrolls that Jesus of Nazareth studied. The same one he read from, same one he knew. However, not as much of this new knowledge from the Dead Sea Scrolls as it should have has filtered down into the several existing Bible versions the Christian community has traditionally used for scores, even a few hundreds, of years. And when we look into the incredible mosaic that the Bible, the Hebrew Tanakh, from Yeshua's time presents us with, it lends some much needed help with restoring original understanding to some of the more difficult but important passages and words we have been faced with. And one such word is Elohim. Now, what I am saying then is that within traditional Christianity, the way the Hebrew term Elohim has historically been understood and interpreted, and I remind you, as God, big G God, or little g gods, plural, actually has led us away from the much more vivid meaning that it actually held to the writers of the Bible, and even to Christ and to His disciples. Now we know this because of the study of cognate words from the earlier languages, and because some of these words had been removed and replaced with different words by biblical editors sometime between the 2nd century AD and the 10th century AD. Because of the traditional way we automatically think of the English words God and gods, we are left with a dilemma. It's a dilemma that is handled either 
by our ignoring the scriptural passages in which we find the word gods, or alternatively, an implausible and biblically impossible explanation is offered in order to soothe us by bypassing a truth we just rather not have to deal with. Now the Bible only seems irrational or illogical to us at times because of the many ways translators have chosen to interpret certain words and meanings, and this is largely due to the many man-made doctrines that influence those interpretations in the first place. The Bible does not present itself to us in camouflage. We need not fear anything it says. It doesn't use hypothetical comparisons that in the end are impossible to occur or are essentially hollow and meaningless. The issue that causes most of our confusion when we read the Bible is not because the Bible's confusing. It is because we insist on filtering it through the lens of whatever modern culture we currently live in. And because we have accepted as true vast amounts of man-made doctrines in order to uphold well-entrenched church and synagogue agendas. See, we insert our modern notions of society, of justice and morals, of grace and mercy, and of the existence or the non-existence of a spirit world that in no way were what the writers of the Bible thought. We need to reorient our thinking. We need to humble ourselves to adjust our modern Enlightenment-era mindsets to accept the biblically presented reality of a well-populated, complex, highly structured spirit world that God created before He created the physical universe, and then populated it with physical creatures. A spirit world that the ancients universally accepted. But in more modern times, it's rejected as but myth, fantasy, legend, believed only by ignorant, primitive people. The church, not wanting to be left behind or to be seen as nuts or unintelligent by the secular world, has tended to modify our doctrines in order to be more in line with societal trends and beliefs. The results are that we have steadily diminished the realities and the effects of the actual spirit world and its creatures that the Bible tells us about, in favor of something watered down. It's watered down so that it's more palatable to a secular society that reveres science far more than faith. The Holy Scriptures tell us unequivocally that God first created a heavenly society that would in time become the pattern for the earthly human society that He would also create. The biblical reality is there exists a dichotomy 
of a God-created heavenly and earthly societies that were structured in the same mold. Now, a long time ago, some of you will recognize this, I gave this dichotomy a name, the reality of duality. Now, I confess to you that over the three decades I've been teaching, I've changed my mind on a few things. Early on, I gave too little credence to a robust spiritual world. I did not challenge old Christian doctrines about certain troubling biblical passages that spoke of other gods, or sons of God, or fallen angels and their hybrid offspring called Nephilim, or of the reality of a heavenly assembly of powers and princes that included a divine ruling council to which God delegated tasks. I never noticed that many beings in heaven disobeyed God, many, and that God developed a plan to deal with them. Not all were cast to earth, as was Satan. So if you hear a few things a bit differently from what you have heard in some of my teachings from many years ago, please allow that even an old man can continue to learn new things. If I can refor reformat my thinking on some serious biblical matters, because that's where the truth leads, then so can you, every one of you. What I ask of you all is to believe what the Bible actually says and not to dismiss that which you don't understand or that troubles you or to kind of twist its meaning, because as it's written, it just doesn't fit what the modern world says, or what the modern world wants to believe. Now, when we read in the Bible about heaven, and there's precious little, by the way, that's said about it, we find that there are a number of categories of spirit beings that reside there. There are angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, powers, principalities, princes, a divine council, and there is something called Elohim. Now, without trying to precisely address every level of the uh, heavenly societal structure, it seems that the order of it actually puts angels as possibly the lowest spirit beings, and Jehovah, of course, is the highest, with all others falling somewhere in between. Archangels clearly had authority over regular angels and likely greater power as well. Seraphim and cherubim seem to be a higher class or maybe a, a special category of spirit being that is either at the top of the scale for angels, or perhaps they're a separate category altogether that's right ranked slightly higher than the angels. But the highest category, the highest category of spirit beings seems to be the Elohim, who as a group 
formed the divine council, or at least some of them did. And some of the Elohim also became rulers over earthly nations other than Israel. Gentile nations had and have one or another of these Elohim assigned to rule over them, while Israel was given the greatest unprecedented privilege of having the Most High Elohim, God Jehovah Himself, as their spirit ruler. Further, according to the Bible passages we read just last week, the Elohim were also the leading rulers over the entire structured society in heaven. Yes, they did receive their marching orders from Jehovah. But clearly, the Elohim had sufficient free will that allowed them enough latitude and freedom in carrying out their orders such that they could actually make wrong decisions. And they even could do wrong things that were against God's will. And they had the power and they had the authority to carry out even the wrong things they intended to do. Doing these wrong things we are told, made them corrupted. And so Jehovah judged among those disobedient, rebellious Elohim to forego living as the eternal spirit beings that they were created to be, but instead, we are told, they would die like mortal humans. Now, is that not essentially what happened to Adam and Eve? and therefore to all mankind that followed? My friends, we humans were intended to be the earthly version of the heavenly Elohim. We were originally intended to live eternal lives, not to experience decay and death. Is that not what God's Word tells us? All right, now let's go again to the book of Genesis, Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in the likeness of ourselves, and let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the animals, over all the earth, over every crawling creature that crawls on the earth. In light of what we've learned, think about that for a minute. In heaven, the Elohim, who formed Jehovah's Divine Council, were to rule over God's heavenly sphere. On earth, humans who were formed in similar likeness of purpose to the Divine Council of the Elohim were to rule over God's earthly sphere, were we not? God is above the Elohim, and of course He's above mankind. The Elohim and we humans, what we were meant to rule over all the other creatures God created within our similar but our separate dominions. The creatures we were to rule over were created lesser than we are in status and in ability, whether spirit beings in the heavenly sphere or physical beings. In the earthly sphere, nevertheless, these lesser creatures are valuable and they're loved by God. 
unfortunately many of those god created elohim that were meant to rule over the heavenly sphere instead rebelled we read that in psalm 82 the same thing happened on earth when adam and eve who god created to rule over the lesser creatures on the earthly sphere rebelled and so they were thrown out of eden and left as corrupted rulers and i'm going to say again the bible tells us that the rule of at least some of the elohim had become corrupted and so did the rule of humans become corrupted well now what see in one sense the Bible is all about God working to restore this disaster. On earth, it's all about restoring Eden. Now, this comparison I just made between heaven and earth and the creatures that inhabit each is not fantasy and it's not a metaphor. It's real. It's so real. It's real enough that Christ made this statement. That is simply not discernible if we do not first understand and accept the reality as well as the true role and nature of the Elohim. Those spirit beings that our English Bibles call gods, but rather ought to just be called divine beings. Listen to what Yeshua said in John 10, verses 31 to 36. Once again the Judeans picked up rocks in order to stone him, and Yeshua answered them, Well, now you have seen me do many good deeds that reflect the Father's power. Now for which one of these deeds are you stoning me? And the Judeans replied, Well, we're not stoning you for any good deed, but for blasphemy, because you who are only a man are making yourself out to be God. Yeshua answered them, Well, isn't it written in your Torah? I have said, you people are Elohim. Well, if he called Elohim the people to whom the word of Elohim was addressed and the Tanakh can't be broken, then are you telling the one whom the Father set apart as holy and then sent into the world, you are committing blasphemy just because I said I'm a son of Elohim? See, now most English Bibles will say, isn't it written in your law, I have said, you are gods? Have you ever noticed that in your Bibles? Ever read that before in John? Did that ever dawn on you? What in the world is he saying? I mean, don't you think that's a bit startling to hear? It startles me. Yeshua says he's quoting. He's quoting what's already been written. He's quoting Scripture. What does he mean by saying you are gods or you are Elohim? Well, in the New Testament, gods is an English word, of course, that is translated from the Greek word theos. A standard Greek lexicon will explain that theos is a general name for all manner of deities and divinities. Yet, even though the oldest gospel manuscripts that we have are all written in Greek, we must remember 
that while Greek was the language used, it was nonetheless Jewish cultural mindset, history, theology that was being expressed. And since we know that Jesus was quoting Psalm 82, then we also know that what He said to the Judeans who were about to stone Him was, I have said, you are Elohim. He certainly didn't mean gods in the way Christianity and most of the world thinks of that term. See, if we remove the concept of gods from our minds and instead think of the Elohim as a special class, of a high class, maybe the highest next to Jehovah, of spirit being, then the point he was making was that just as in heaven the Elohim were to be the ruling class over all heavenly spirit beings, so on earth humans were to be the ruling class of physical beings, humans as but earthly Elohim, if you would, ruling over all other classes of lesser physical creatures, the animal kingdom in general. Yeshua furthers his argument by saying that if God says to certain divine beings that they are sons of God, sons of the Most High Elohim, and these Judeans berating Jesus seem to have no trouble with that concept, by the way, then why do they have a problem with Yeshua saying that He is a son of the Most High Elohim? That is, it is the Father, Yahweh, who determines such status of His created creatures. It's not men, nor even other heavenly beings that determine that status. The implication that can bypass us is that it was a given that the Jews understood. They accepted that the Elohim were sons of God in heaven. And of course, they were real. Of course, they existed. Therefore, all that being true, if the Father sent Yeshua as a son of Elohim to earth, then what cause do they have for saying he is blaspheming? Good logic. Now, there's so much more we can get into concerning this matter of understanding the term Elohim and the reasons for accepting the robust spirit world that began its existence prior to the creation of the universe, but we're going to stop and return to Amos. Now the conclusion of the discussion to this point then is, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we're not going to try to rationalize it, to make it fit our modern, enlightened, scientific mindset or to try to pound it into the mold of man-made church doctrines that cannot possibly tolerate a robust spirit world full of various levels and kinds of spirit beings, then we'll never understand the meaning and intentions of the people who wrote the Bible. Never. Because they did believe in such a world, and they wrote within that context. The writers of the Bible were not wrong. And what they believed. We are wrong when we dismiss it.
merely delving into the true meaning of the word Elohim opens a, a new realm for us to explore that gives us wonderful new insights and it deepens our faith if only we'll be open to it. Okay, now, armed with this new knowledge about the term Elohim, let's move back to Amos chapter 6 and resume at verse 8. We're going to start by rereading this passage. So open your Bibles to Amos chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 8. Amos chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Adonai Elohim swears by himself. Says Adonai Elohe Sefaot. I detest that Jacob is so proud. I hate his palaces. I will hand over the city along with everything in it. And when that day comes, if ten men remain in one house, they will die. And if a dead man's uncle coming to bring the corpse out of the house and burn it, finds the survivor hidden in the inmost recesses of the house and asks, Is anyone else with you? Then when he receives the answer, No, he will say, Don't say any more, because we mustn't mention the name of Adonai. For when Adonai gives the order, great houses will be shattered, small houses reduced to rubble. Do horses run on rock? Does one plow there? with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into bitter wormwood. You take pleasure in worthless things. You think your power comes from your own strength. But I will raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, says Adonai Elohei Sebaot, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the wadi of the Arabah. Now, this literary unit that concludes chapter 6 is all about a devastating military defeat that Israel is going to suffer in the near term. It opens with the Hebrew expression, Yehovah has sworn. Now, this expression is used three times in the Bible, and every time it is used, it is to pronounce judgment over a disobedient people or nation. Now, the way this verse ought to be translated into English, a way that most captures its image and its intent that the ancients would have heard and understood, goes something like this The Lord Jehovah has sworn by himself, Jehovah Most High, divine being of the hosts, has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob, I detest his citadels, therefore I will deliver up the city and all it contains. Now, recalling what we learned earlier today, while the other nations had other Elohim assigned to rule over them, the Most High Elohim, Jehovah, personally ruled over Israel. Israel was Jehovah's special project, because through them would come restoration of the world, the return of Eden. He did not trust this most important task any other than himself. And now that Israel has rebelled against him, 
Jehovah will deal with them in a way that both punishes Israel as well as kicking the ball further towards the goal of restoration. Now, when Jehovah says that he loathes the pride of Jacob, this is referring to the arrogance of the people who defy Jehovah by being believing so strongly in their military to defend them, because at the moment their economic condition was one of great abundance. In other words, Israel believes it's by their own brilliant economic strategies that they are a wealthy nation. And therefore, it will be by their own equally brilliant military strategies and their defensive fortresses that makes them nearly invincible from attack. See, this attitude has developed over many decades of their moving away from the Torah and into developing new man-made doctrines to live by and to worship by. They feel they had nothing but success. So how could they possibly be wrong in their beliefs and in their behavior? I want to put this in perspective. Back in 1996, the American Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan looked at a looming economic disaster then called the dot-com bubble, wondering why the financial world was acting like it wasn't there. As obvious as it was to any clear thinker, he termed this mass obliviousness of investors and bankers and corporate executives to this oncoming train wreck as irrational exuberance. Our financial system was riding high. Money was flowing like an endless river. People were getting richer. This new thing called the internet was spawning new and successful businesses daily and it seemed that our entire financial and economic system had seen had hit some never before seen level of human devised brilliance and acumen that defied all logic greenspan did his best to warn people that it was all a mirage disaster was near he warned folks that the joy over their good fortune and the reasons for it and their decisions going forward to keep doing the same things were irrational when compared with the reality. He, of course, was right on because it was so obvious. See, this is what God was saying that Israel was doing. Jacob's pride was Israel's era of irrational exuberance. Now, by using the term Jacob, Yaakov, Yehovah is indicating that all twelve tribes of Israel are guilty. And although Amos had been has been aimed, pardon me, squarely at the ten tribes of Ephraim, Israel, the two tribes of Judah are now added to the mix. Now, the timing of the coming calamity is not discussed. But we know from history that first Ephraim fell to the Assyrians in 723 BC, and then around 130 years later, Judah would fall to the Babylonians. 
Now, verse 9 is essentially an expression of the completeness of the devastation that Israel will experience. The notion about the ten people in one house has sometimes been said to be about a minyan. This is the smallest Jewish prayer group allowed, or that maybe it was the smallest unit of an army organization at that time. I think that's all a stretch. Rather, the idea is that even though after the brunt of the invasion has been faced and the city walls breached, should even ten people, ten survivors, huddle together in a single house, the enemy will discover them and kill them. No one should hold out any hope of survival, because if they decide to stay, the invaders killing machine will be ruthlessly efficient. Verse 10 then goes on to peel the onion back yet another layer. While verse 9 talked about ten survivors, verse 10 drills down to the single individual level. A fictional narrative, kind of a short story, is given to make God's point. The kin of a deceased person comes to take care of a corpse, even if only to burn the body up without all the usual burial and mourning rituals because of all the extenuating circumstances. And while looking through the rubble of the house where the body was found, he calls out, Is anyone here that's alive? He hears a single voice. And he asks that voice, Is there anyone else? The survivor says, No. Next, the man who had come to fetch his kin's body says something in the response that can be puzzling. He tells the survivor to be quiet because the name of Jehovah should not be spoken. Now, there's a few different ways the story can be looked at, some more plausible than others. One popular way in the Jewish world, which has to do with anointing a corpse with resin, that is, not burning it up, is trying to read back into Amos something that was written about such situations in what's called the Mishnaic era. Now, the Mishnaic era runs from about the time of Christ to around 220 AD. And since this prophecy in Amos was written around 800 or more years earlier than that, I find it not plausible to apply arcane rules taken from the Mishnah, that's rabbinic law, as though it would have been effect in Amos's era. I think it's more likely that those words mean that once this horrible disaster finally does happen, and people have now decimated Israel, get it, <laughs> that Jehovah did exactly what He said He'd do to them, then Jehovah needed to be feared more as a deadly enemy than as the formerly benevolent God He used to be. Therefore, in the midst of all this misery and death, the kin who is combing through the ruins of his nephew's house tells the lone survivor to stop talking and in fear of attracting Jehovah's attention. Everything considered, no Israelite in their right 
mind ought to be calling on the name of Jehovah because he just might hear and then come and finish him off. Survivors would be wiser to stay away from the clearly angry Jehovah for now. Now, verse 11 essentially completes describing this, this panoramic scale of the calamity that leaves nothing, no one untouched. It refers to the individual houses of the cities of Ephraim themselves, the great houses, in other words, the mansions of the rich, as well as the little houses, the small, the plain residences of ordinary citizens. They're all going to be destroyed. And as the beginning of the verse continues to hammer away, it is indeed Yehovah, Israel's Elohim, that is commanding and overseeing this catastrophe, every last element of it. Verse 12 begins a passage that speaks to the moral outrage that Israel has become. The opening words are a rhetorical question, a rhetorical question that common sense begs the answer. No, but yet Israel responds with such lack of common sense that perhaps they believe the answer should be yes, and the two questions are intended to be absurd in the extreme in order to emphasize the, well, the complete foolishness of Israel's behavior towards Jehovah. I mean, how warped their minds have become. God asks. Can a horse gallop across a bare rock formation? Can you connect a pair of oxen to a plow and then cut furrows through solid rock? Well, the obvious answer is that it would be laughable for anyone to think, let alone attempt, such inherently stupid things. Yet, in similar stupidity and foolishness, Israel took God's precisely devised justice system and they reformed it into their own mold with the result that they essentially turned something that protected life into something deadly. They turned God's perfect moral system of delightful righteousness into something flawed and wicked and harsh and bitter, wormwood by perverting it with their own thoughts of justice, mercy, and morality. It is also obvious. Yet Israel has become so deeply deceived, they can't even see what they've done. Nor can they acknowledge the disastrous results of their man-made doctrines that essentially gutted the Law of Moses. But worse, the road back to sanity sits right there before them and they refuse to get on it. Now perhaps the primary reason I decided to teach a series on Minor Prophets was because they offer a good platform to recognize the condition of our world today. It's an illustration also of what we can re reasonably expect God to do in response. But the one thing, you know, the prophets didn't have to deal with back then was people who didn't believe in any God at all. 
You know, there really are many fine, brave believers who take the time to debate with atheists in a hope they might save one. Well, I'm not one of those folks. I have no patience for it. The notion that there is no God and that the universe, humanity, animal life, consciousness are purely accidental and random. I mean, it's so overtly absurd and blatantly foolish in itself, it indicates a complete intellectual and spiritual barrier to anything anyone could offer to persuade them otherwise. I just can't bring myself to waste my time talking to the intentionally and perpetually dumb. Who seriously believes such nonsense? When there are so many who seek God, they just don't know where to look. It's like Paul said in Romans 1.20, For ever since the creation of the universe, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen, because they can be understood from what He's made. Therefore, they have no excuses. Long before Paul, we read in Psalm 19 the same obvious conclusion that all rational thinking people ought to arrive at. In Psalm 19, too, the heavens declare the glory of God, the dome of the sky speaks the work of his hands. See, today we are dealing with another issue the prophets did not have to contend with. It is the latest, I think maybe it's the worst moral outrage of mankind. It's the thing called gender identity, which includes the ideas that there are several more genders than only male and female, and that whatever gender we think we are or decide to be is legitimately what we are. The reality of gender as fixed from the womb and consisting of but two has been so basic, self-evident, evident, and obvious since the time of Adam and Eve, until about 20 years ago, that anyone who might have even brought it up would have been laughed out of the building, as they should have been. But suddenly, some self-absorbed, so-called intellectuals have decided that humanity and God, should they believe one even exists, have been wrong until now, and they know better. The defining biology that stares them in the face every time they look down in the shower means nothing to them. We even have a sitting Supreme Court Justice that honestly said and meant that since she isn't a professional biologist, she didn't know how to tell if a person is a woman. See, this deviant mindset is exactly what God is describing to open verse 12. What is ludicrous, preposterous, ultimately self-destructive is actually and sincerely believed to be true by some because those who believe it have lost their common sense along with losing their morality. 
Those who believe such wildly irrational things also can't compartmentalize it to just one area of their lives or their thoughts. It radiates outward like an exploding star. It affects and infects everything they encounter and do. God taught truth, and He gave proofs for it. He pled. God warned. He threatened. He tried everything to get Israel to pull off the blinders of deception they had willingly placed over their own eyes. They refused to heed Him. Instead, they simply doubled down in their rebellion. Now, folks, when someone gets to the point of immorality that God-given gender is no longer considered as discernible or absolute, it gets no more degrading and wicked than that. It just doesn't. They have sunk to the bottom of the pit. I acknowledge that enough damage has been done by those godless who proclaim this nonsense that it already may be too late. Still, it's time that God's people woke up and spoke up against this outrage. See, we need to stand up and not be afraid. We need to quit thinking that good followers of Christ should not openly speak out or take action to oppose it. See, that meekness of silence that so many believers are proud of and think of it as godly, I contend is either a profound misunderstanding of Scripture, or just as likely it's really only a front for personal cowardice. For any of us, pastor, rabbi, layman, to be silent in the face of the worst immorality our nation has ever known is unacceptable. Is the Word of God not clear enough on what happens to those who can do something to fight immorality, but instead just sit on their hands thinking it the more godly thing to do? That same silence has opened wide a formerly protected door that has allowed even the church to become deeply infected with the same spirit of immorality and evil that is infecting the entire planet. Church split after church split is happening over these asinine issues that are so clearly spoken about in God's Word, as if God has given every believer an option to choose however he or she prefers. We should not, I will not, I will not tolerate such blatant rebellion against God in my family, in my community, in my congregation, my nation, by remaining silent. I will not remain silent. Neither should you. And no, I also will not spend my time seeking out swine in order to cast them some pearls. I will not spend energy to try to persuade a fully and happily deceived adult person who mocks God in such a way that they are deceived because they have no excuse for it. They have willfully chosen to accept lies over truth, immorality over morality. Will I pray for those 
who are deceived to have their eyes opened? Will I gladly speak life to young, impressionable people and try to persuade them against adopting the gender confusion that so much of our population now celebrates as intelligent and good? Most assuredly. But our duty is to speak God's truth to those whose ears are opening are open to hearing it. Our duty is not to try to convince those who are closed. It's also our duty to speak truth and love, to not allow such recklessness uh, of immorality into our lives, into our families, or to into our community, according to some worldly sense of man-made designed mercy and justice and love and choice that is completely counter to God's. We have essentially the same things going on right now before our eyes and for the same reasons that Amos is prophesying about more than 2,700 years ago. All right, let's move on. The background for verse 13 is actually 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we read. He recovered the territory of Israel between the entrance of Hamath and the Sea of the Arabah, in keeping with the word of Adonai, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gatifer. See, this is speaking about King Jeroboam's attack of territory on the east side of the Jordan River. A better translation now of Amos 6.13 then is this. You who rejoice and load the bar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? See, it seems that for Amos, Jeroboam's conquest of these two cities had nothing to do with what God wanted. Therefore, Jeroboam and his people looked upon their joyful military victory and promptly patted themselves on their backs for their brilliance. Gave God no glory or credit for it at all. That is, this is all about exposing Ephraim Israel's history of pride and self-confidence and ignoring Jehovah all the while offering a, a phony piousness. Amos was not impressed, and neither was Jehovah. So despite how wonderful and intelligent and self-reliant Israel might think themselves, verse 14 has Jehovah telling them that He is going to rise up a nation that will invade them and that the invaders will succeed. This unnamed conqueror will offset any territorial gains that Israel has made in the past. Israel will not be allowed to retain that territory which God had not determined for them to have in the first place. Now the place of Hamat was the boundary of Israel's northernmost territory at this time, while the Wadi Arabah was its southernmost boundary. So the mention of these two places is to make it clear that Ephraim will lose all of its territory, including the territory God allocated to them long ago when Joshua led Israel into the Promised Land. Nothing of Ephraim Israel will remain. All right, I want to close out Amos chapter 6 with this thought. 
You know, over a few decades, Israel had completely destroyed the God-ordained order and morality they had been taught to live by. Chaos and confusion resulted. But to the Israelites, everything seemed fine. The people felt confident and self-satisfied. Yet to Yehovah, everything was wrong with Israelite society. Their values, their virtues, their customs, their habits, it all changed for the worse. Underlying it all was that the people of Israel forgot that they had made a covenant with Yehovah, the Most High Elohim. They turned their backs on that covenant by refusing to comply with its agreed two terms, and yet, and yet, they fully expected that God would carry through with His end of the bargain despite their bad behavior. Sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? Despite their blatant apostasy and rebellion, they still raised their hand towards heaven. They claimed they were obedient and loyal to Jehovah. God said, No, you're not. No, you're not. And you're going to be treated as enemies. As believers, we must not forget that when we turned to Yeshua, we each made a covenant. Or better, through Yeshua, we joined Israel's covenant with Jehovah God of Israel. And now that each of us, each of us, are joined to that covenant, we are individually obligated to its terms. And you know what? There's consequences for breaking those terms. Are you being obedient to the covenant? Because if you're not, even though you claim loyalty to Jehovah, why would you not expect to hear from the Lord the same thing Israel heard? No, you're not. No, you're not. All right, we'll take up chapter 7 next time.